This podcast is presented by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. And the way I say giving up is like letting a thing die that's ready to die with a belief that there's wisdom in it, with a belief that like things have seasons, there are cycles, things can grow, and then usually they get to some kind of point where in growth where there is decay. Hello and welcome to The Hegemonicon, a podcast from Convergence Magazine. This is a show about social movements and politics, strategy and ideology, the immediate present, and the rapidly onrushing future. I'm your host, William Lawrence. I spent my 20s as a member of grassroots social movements, most prominently as a co-founder and national leader of Sunrise Movement, the youth organization that put the Green New Deal on the political map. Now I'm in my early 30s trying to make sense of what we've collectively learned in this last decade plus of social movements and heightening social crises. I talk with activists and researchers on the left, exploring the guiding theme of power, what it is, how it's exercised, and how it's distributed. Today's conversation is a bit of a transitional episode in the overall development of our show. We've been talking thus far about how we got here, significant movements and moments from the last decade plus on the American left. Soon we'll move into what we're building, which will be episodes about the organizations and ideas that have the most currency today in 2023 and 2024. We'll have at least a half dozen episodes talking with labor organizers, tenant organizers, left intellectuals, cadre builders, and party builders, all of whom are moving with decisiveness and urgency to build the infrastructure that we hope will help us win. But before diving into all of that, I want to hold some space for uncertainty. Uncertainty about what we should be building and what winning even means. And I'll admit that personally, I've spent a lot of the last three years feeling quite uncertain. Some of my long-cherished dreams and hopes and assumptions about the world were really challenged and even shattered by events in 2020 and 2021. There have been radicalizing moments that have caused me to question things I took for granted. And, you know, those dreams and assumptions don't just get replaced right away, nor should they. Actually, our feelings of defeat, confusion, and doubt reflect a dawning awareness about some part of reality that was previously hidden to us. And I've experienced this personally, and I'm sure you have too. So I want to remind us or encourage us when you find yourself in this state, don't hide from it. Don't run from it. That's a recipe for getting stuck in the past with old ideas and stale analysis, or it can become a recipe for half-baked ideas if you want to rush through the process of being uncertain. Instead, I invite us all to ask, what were we certain of before? Where did that break down? And how is each of our understandings of ourselves and of the world now being transformed? Today, on behalf of all of the doubtful and confused ones out there, we're making space for uncertainty with my guest and my friend, the remarkable West Virginian organizer, Katie Lauer. Katie, I'm really glad to have you here. Um, please go ahead and introduce yourself. I'm really glad to be here and to be talking to you, Will. My name's Katie. I live in southern West Virginia um, in Fayette County, which is sort of on the edge of the coal fields here, a, a way that we talk about our region. And I've been 
an organizer and trainer in Central Appalachia for the last 15 years. And over the last 15 years, I've had a lot of hats and I've tried on a lot of theories of change and ways ways of organizing. And some of those have looked like coalition building. I've been a part of a number of direct action campaigns, which took me to into a project of um, working for a People's History Museum in the southern part of the state. And I, though my younger self would have been surprised at it, I also have spent the last five years primarily focusing on sort of populist left electoral work. And uh, I, I will say, I think how I'm coming into this conversation is, you know, I've got some organizational hats I'm happy to talk about, and I'm coming into this conversation with a lot of <laughs> I think I, I mean, my current organizational hat is un, an uncertain person. Like I, I'm coming in with a lot of questions about the conditions that we're operating in and what, how I want to be in relating to them and how I think options for how we could be that might, I don't know, just like help us show up to them with full hearts. And maybe lastly, I'll say that the organizations I currently work for and with are West Virginia Can't Wait, which is a statewide organization in West Virginia that's out, we say, or out to win a people's government. So we do electoral and governance work and also some support for organizers on the ground. And I'm also a core trainer with a, a national training organization called Training for Change. Thank you, Katie. And even though we're not here to talk about it, we're here to talk about uncertainty. <laughs> uh, you know, I just want to say that this is all really good, high quality work that you've done at every step of the way. I mean, you make things when you set your mind to making something happen you work big and you work serious and you work with large numbers of people i've seen that every step of the way i mean i remember the march on blair mountain when you were one of the core organizers and you had hundreds of people marching for five days along the side of the road you know outside of charleston so that's just to say for the listeners, I mean, I could go on. I could go on down memory road. But, but Katie works big. Katie, uh, the first time I met Katie, actually, was she came up to my college when we were uh, in 2013, and you t accepted an assignment. I might have met you once. No, this is not true. I knew you before this. But you came and you stood up. I remember you standing up and basically leading, like, 219-year-olds <laughs> in a room through like some sort of three-hour facilitation session at the divestment mm. convergence. And you were like really taking us to school and providing a real center of energy and focus for what was otherwise a you know very chaotic and sprawling kind of <laughs> uh, event. So uh, you just really know how to get people moving in the same direction. So, um, but we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about uh, uh, uncertainty, navigating uncertainty, which is where you, you say you find yourself now. Um, we're talking in early October, and later this month, you're leading a workshop that's called Navigating Uncertainty, Backlash, and Loneliness. And focus specifically on uh, Appalachian organizers and folks that you've been working with for a long time in, in, in West Virginia and Central Appalachia. So why do you think uncertainty loneliness and backlash are important topics to be exploring now. You know, part of what's been baked into all of those, like, let me give my full self to this thing projects has been like, kind of fully trying on a theory of change and like giving all that I have to that effort. So like, five years ago, when we started this electoral work, the question I felt 
curious about, I think other organizers and other places were curious about, is like, what would it look like if we ran no corporate cash, populist candidates for office and like back them fully and use the organizing skills we have from other places to like invest in those campaigns. And so I say that because it has been uncomfortable for me to be in this new state because I've, I've done a lot of the work that I've done in the past has been from a place of like, here's an experiment we're going to try and we're going to do it with all of our might and all of ourselves. And Right now, what I, I feel like I'm doing instead that's counter to all of that is just like opening to a lot of unknown. And I think the reason that I'm attracted to it or I think it's important it is like, it's not quite a rational thing. Like it's not quite a, I sat down and read a bunch of articles and interviewed a bunch of people in different places and had a bunch of one-on-ones and I came to some conclusion, but it's more like my psyche isn't really up for anything else. Like I... I hit a big organizing wall last winter. I'm reluctant to call it burnout. I don't think that that, I think there's some things that maybe sometimes get implied in that language that feel like I just worked too hard and then I crashed. But I I think, I mean, a little bit of that feels true, but there's something else that felt like it was going on that was closer to like leadership fatigue, like having been in leadership roles for so long and also having been in leadership through these last couple of years, which were punctuated by a pandemic and uprisings and an election cycle. And then all of the like reckoning and isolation in the aftermath of all of that. And I just had this, as as other organizers did, like this very immersive experience of like being in a lot of uncertainty and being in leadership while I was mm-hmm. doing it. And the way that I was in that uncertainty wore me out. It just, the way I was trying to provide leadership to it wore me out. And um, what was required of you as a, in that context of being a leader? Yeah, I I think, I mean, these are like old ways of thinking that I'm now like, I think I want to talk to you about like if, if it's possible to shed them or where they come from or things like that. But I think some of the, some of the things I noticed myself doing was like doing a lot of work to create, an absorbent, flexible, wise organizational culture. So Mm -hmm. I remember us, for example, like when the pandemic hit, doing this mass call that a couple hundred people got on where we were doing, we were like dropping our entire field operation. This was a couple months before this primary that we were organizing around. We were dropping the whole field operation and then pivoting the entire thing we had planned on a dime to doing a bunch of stuff online. So just like mm-hmm. overnight. Mm-hmm. And what I was doing in leadership was like imagining what the new strategy was that we were going to immediately switch right into, but also doing like the eldering that I think it required of us to do that well, which included doing things like teaching about what transitions are and why they happen and how we can show up in them. And a thing I feel proud of about that time is I think that that happened. I think we built a really beautiful, supportive group culture of having folks, like helping folks find their way and helping folks find their agency. But You're the saying co- that you successfully held people together through the through, 2020 yeah, times? Through that period. But <laughs> Which I think, is a lot to say. I mean, most people didn't even do that, but what was yeah, the Yeah, I think our group stayed in good shape. You know, I think, not to say that it was easy or clear all the time, but just that I think we didn't disintegrate. We stayed together and we stayed in a 
shape of relating to each yeah. other. But I think that one of the costs of it was that I found myself outside of the thing that I was, the container that I was creating. Like part of the like habit of leadership I was practicing was like doing a lot of work to sort of build a culture that a lot of folks could find themselves inside and lead into and get support inside of. Mm. And I wasn't getting resourced and I wasn't getting the, I needed elder, I needed eldering, I needed like to get held. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think one of the questions that's led me to is what about that? You know, I see, I see a lot of other people in leadership around me be in a similar place of like doing a lot of thoughtful tending to support the people we're with and then not getting resourced themselves. Anyway, I have a lot more to say about that, but I think that's an example of like part of how I just got so fatigued is like so much of my attention was outward Mm -hmm. and so much of it was trying to like maintain a pace, maintain a clip, like maintain the integrity of our, the thing we had built. And so then you said you sort of hit a wall. It, it, it wasn't burnout, but it was an unwillingness or a, a, a inability to have more answers or, or what was it? Yeah, I think it was, uh, I just couldn't be responsible for one more collective problem, like feel like sort of the backstop person for one more collective problem or challenge. And I got to take a big break. And uh, so starting last year, like end of January last year, I took four months off and it was wonderful. I got to, and hard, I got to feel a lot of feelings that I hadn't been letting myself feel. Cause I was so, I was so in this like sort of braced holding the thing together mode that I, there wasn't, I couldn't always, I wasn't always letting in like all the things that were true for me and all the grief and confusion I felt. I think one other way that I was in leadership is like this, uh, kind of confident elder role. And uh, I just let a lot more doubt in, I think when I, when I had some time away. And I think I also let myself ask a bunch of questions that feel like they're kind of third rail. Mm-hmm. So an example of that is, um, you know, especially in the last five years, I part of the experiment that I was a part of running was like, how do we scale? Like, how do we build infrastructure and institutions that can get to the scale of the build enough power to be comparable or stronger right. than the forces we're fighting? I think most of us dream that we want to be part of an organization that <laughs> can't scale. We all got into that in the really? 2010s. There's a thing that happened about that. And, and I think it's still with us. You know, like I got, I was asked to participate in a survey that I think. I, I want think, to be part of a mass organization. But it was about like, what kind of power does the left need to build as the survey? And I just felt like the, I was so disinterested in the question when they asked me. Because I think that, anyway, so this is the third row question. The third row question is like, there's something about scale and the idea that we can like control and build it that I I wonder about the ways in which that is like an echo of the things we've learned from capitalism or things we've learned from empire, which is that like some of the assumptions that are baked into that are things like we need to get big and control the 
control the conditions and situation around us, make ourselves inevitable and win and get to like some state of domination. And mm-hmm. maybe the, you know, the language we use inside movements is not the same language, but I think some of the things that are like, that we see inside. I think you're right. That there's something about trying to control conceptually the way things are going to go. Because it's like you build the grand strategy, and the grand strategy is in the nature of first we do this, then we do this. Then we'll have changed the conditions, and we'll be able to do this. And then we get to phase four, in which we've remade the whole of society in our image. And I mean, I think that's that's not bad. I, I... I, again, I, I love having strategies like that. I've been a big proponent of grand strategy and being able to plan ahead, but it is trying to impose this control onto the future. And the problem with the grand strategy is when you've got the five-phase strategy and then the world goes awry in your stage two, then maybe you're back at square zero. Yeah, you know? uh, right. And sometimes that's when the conditions shift and then it's like, oh, wow, do we need to go back through another two-year strategic planning process now that our four-year plan we came up with one year ago is bunk? Uh, And I think a lot of people probably ended up in that place in 2020 when the condition just so radically changed the conditions of, you know, what the threats and opportunities were. But you and I talked earlier this year on the theme of control, and I hear control also in the way you're talking about being a leader of a group. In some ways, it's holding the container from the outside and then trying to plan for and usher in the outcomes through, you know, Mm -hmm. a set of group processes where you're inviting people to think about things in the correct perspective and, and whatnot. And, I mean, I really admire people who have that skill set of being able to tend the group in that way and move people forward. I mean, obviously, there's something there that we really need, but it does seem to come to this limit where what happens when that person can't gain the perspective themselves anymore i don't know and, yeah. and, and is it is it and you know then the other question would be is it somehow counter democratic all along or is it a way of putting oneself aside from or apart from the group and we should be seeking to be among rather than apart from and then what are the practices that would actually allow us to do yeah. that and I'll say I, you know, I'm interested in this question, this like leadership question, I think less in the less in the direction of like, how does this get us tired and worn out and that sort of thing, though I think that matters. But I really just think that those those feelings that can emerge about it are are more of a I think they're more illuminating about like the setup of the thing at all versus like, um, you know, I, I don't want to go into like a. Uh, how do we take care of ourselves direction? Because I think there's something that's more holistic. I think there's a more holistic way of getting curious about what. I agree. What's going on. And I, maybe I want to say one more thing about the uncertainty that you're just underscoring, which is like, so, so yes, we can be at like stage two of the thing that we're planning and, uh, and then the condition shift. And then we're wondering like, do we go to stage three or not? Or we stay in stage two or do we scrap the whole thing? And I think where we, I think where I have like noticed that like that uh, pre-planning work can get us in trouble is when we assume that uncertainty isn't going to show up. Like I think we're just, 
I think at yes. least where I live right now, I feel like I'm living in a in a place where uncertainty feels and like changing conditions, rapidly changing conditions and not really seeing a clear way just feels endemic. And I, and so my curiosity is about like, okay, if, the, if we just take that as a part of the status quo, that like uncertainty, backlash, not a lot of clarity about like what campaigns are even viable right now, then what? Like, then what if we just like take those things on board as opposed to pretending that they don't exist and then try to make plans sort of like imagining right. the absence of them? Right. Yeah, it stands to reason that a resilient sort of strategy would be one that anticipated and planned for uncertainty itself. That seems pretty hard to refute, but we we do a lot of that in our imaginings about the future and who we and our organizations will become. I I wonder, like, so you're in West Virginia, which is obviously mm-hmm. um, uh, a red state, as they say. Although I'm, uh, you've done incredible work to build a, a populist political current, a really a left populist political current in West Virginia, uh, in a variety of your organizing. How much do you think the conditions of uncertainty uh, that you're describing are kind of, to what extent are they generalizable and what to what extent are they particular to your context? I'm sure the answer is it's both. I'm curious to hear you kind of tease out some of the ways that you see it working in each direction. Yeah, Matt, I think I think I'll join your your first answer, which is I think it's probably both. Place-based organizing has been the thing that I've invested the most in. And so I just, I know this place very deeply and very well, and I think can say a lot about it. So some things I would say about it are right now, the way of moving many campaigns that I previously would have seen forward is very unclear. And and I think part of that is that the way that I um, have learned to run issue-based campaigns, for example, is that you like identify a target and then you organize enough power and public pressure to move that target. And that is how you get to the place you're trying to get. Right now, our targets in the state just feel like, who, I don't even, you know, who, who are we gonna put pressure on for what? So, mm-hmm. I, you know, some of those conditions look things like, like we have won, uh, not, that, not that Democrats are necessarily here to save us, but we have one Democrat in our state Senate. Um, yep. We, just as sort of like a litmus of the conditions. We have. So you just have um, you have no toehold whatsoever. Well, no, and even in our like theoretically democratically run cities, those are the cities here being small, like forty eight thousand people. We have Democrat elected officials that are passing ordinances to criminalize harm reduction work or criminalize homelessness, and so people that we would imagine, I think previously have imagined as being persuadable, just there's been some really smart, serious, deep organizing going on in those places to run campaigns. And they're just losing. They're losing those fights. And not only that, but there's an incredible amount of backlash, especially for um, against folks that are trans, people who use drugs, folks that are homeless. There's just a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of blowback. And so I don't think that is, I don't think those conditions are unique in history. There's plenty of places in the world where there are really difficult conditions and harder conditions than these ones. I don't think they're unique to this place historically, globally, or, you know, there's plenty of places that are, quote, blue states that I think people are also struggling with what they can do and where to head. And I think what is, what feels universal about them is like, 
in any environment we're operating in, there's going to be some amount of uncertainty, some amount of pushback. And so I, I think I'm, I'm think loneliness, like feel, feeling um, separate from each other. And so I was asking the question you're asking quite a bit a few months ago of just like, how, is this going, is this going around? Like, is this in our movement lives? And I think the, the place that I, the way that I hold it lately is like, it's up everywhere always a little bit. It's just, it's a matter yeah. of degree and a matter of the way that like that local organizing culture relates to it. And it's up here. It's up where I am. And so this is an opportunity to practice what it, what it looks like to work in relationship to it and find out like what was, what wisdom we can glean from. Yeah. Operating in, in the title of the workshop that we're offering, but operating in conditions of, uncertainty and backlash and loneliness. Yeah. So why don't you give it to us as straight as you can then? What is the your critique that maybe you're developing? I know you don't want to be prescriptive, but what is your critique that you're developing about what we have been doing or the shape our organizations have taken? Mm-hmm. So... so I think I'll answer this question by saying two of my biggest teachers right now about how to think about all of this are this person named Bayo Kumalafe, who is a Nigerian born, now lives in India, I believe, sort of philosopher and like thought leader and movement agitator. And then also a friend of mine and a colleague at Training for Change, Andrea Para, who lives in Bogota. And I've been finding it very sobering, clarifying to talk to people that are far outside of my context and sort of farther away from the heart of the empire to hear, yeah, just to see things I haven't seen. And one of the, one of the frames that Bio offers, but he, what he calls the sensorium of white modernity. And what I understand that to mean is that as activists and organizers, there are assumptions baked in to how we think about and relate to our work that we have learned from living inside of being influenced by being close to white modernity. And I think he would, I think he would be okay with the swapping out of white modernity to also mean colonization or empire or capitalism, but just like there's a, there's a set of conditions that we've live inside of that we have absorbed some of and it's hard for us to even see it because we're so close to it and andrea has a very similar which she would just call she would just say ah you're thinking like an imperialist (laughs) but all the same i think that one of the lessons from them is that this is one this is one of their many challenges but one of their many challenges is like this idea of winning of getting to some kind of revolutionary moment where the scales are tipped and we reach some state that is good for all people and that that's what we're oriented toward is a notion that is just an echo of empire and imperialism. It's just, it's rooted in the belief that like we have control over things that we should exercise that control to get to some state that we believe to be universally good for all even though it might not be. And then once we get there, we'll have like arrived at the promised land. I don't know that many, there's also, yeah, there's also, you can hear some like Christian undertones in it. And I don't think either of them would say like, we shouldn't work toward things that we want to be different. But I think that, you know, baked into my very early organizing life, I think especially coming up in the climate movement, 
there was this sense that like we had a time that was a deadline that we had to reach to save the world. There was this like way in which winning by a certain in a certain way by a certain date was the thing that we were striving toward. And even though I think I've shaken that off, like even though I think that I've have uh, you know I feel humility about like what it is that yeah. we can do, etc. There is still something that I notice in myself that like when we work on a ballot initiative and the ballot initiative doesn't go exactly the way we want and we don't reach the state in which we have legalized cannabis in our town, there's still something in me that is like, we, f- we failed, we lost, we did, that is like, it, it's still, I don't know, there's something about that way of thinking or being that still feels like it gets kicked up that's like, we didn't exercise control and we were supposed to. And not only do we not win the cannabis revolution, we're one step further behind. On the road <laughs> yeah, right. There's like global a global revolution. Are we closer to the de- Are we closer to the like promised land or not? So I don't, it's subtle. It's a subtle difference. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be working on cannabis ballot initiatives, but like the orientation that is baked into that is like an external orientation that what we're up to is like trying to control the conditions around us and measuring ourselves, measuring our the quality of what we've done in relationship to how much we have successfully exercised control. I think an alternative way of relating that, like, again, I think I'm learning from these elders is that Another way to measure like the quality or value of what we do is how much it is in alignment with ourselves. And I don't just mean like in a in a value-based way, but I mean like, is there more aliveness created in me and created in the people around me when we do this thing together? Are mm-hmm. we in joy when we're with each other? Are we in generative conflict with each other? What I, I don't I don't just mean it in a sunny way, but like do I feel more alive, connected with other people as I'm moving? And I think I've always valued that some, but it has felt like a an add-on to the like let's make the let's make the controlling we're doing feel better. You know, I think it's the way that I mm-hmm. the more the like blunt way that I would sort of critique my own orientation in the past. And I so. I want to cut in on behalf of the the person who's listening to this and would say like, okay, but what you're this is now a retreat from politics, basically that you're describing into a sort of individualism where it's about how me mm. or even like a an abstentionism, not necessarily totally individualistic, but even collectively, communally, how we feel, how we make ourselves and each other feel just on a daily basis, rather than the sort of plans we're making uh, in the political realm to achieve goals, uh, even if modest goals that are, you know, designed to get a better deal Mm -hmm. for us and our neighbors. Yeah. I think what I would say back is, I don't mean the, I don't mean my, these set of questions to be questions that are asking, is it this way or is it that way? I do think that curiosity I'm sitting with is like, I mean, not even a curiosity, but a, a, a statement I think I can at least stand by in my own context is like, we have been so in one of those ways of being, we have been so oriented toward the like, are we getting closer to the outcome or not? That so much of like the way in which we are with each other gets marginalized for that end. It's, it's always secondary. And so... Mm-hmm. 
I think part of what I'm rooting for is like, can those things live a little bit more in relationship to each other and less that one is primary? And that sometimes maybe the thing about how are we with each other gets to be primary for gets to be primary for a little bit. Yeah. That like these things are it's it's um it feels to me like in some ways it's more about balance than it is about one way is right and one way is wrong. I think the other thing that I am also coming around to and uh my younger, I'll, I'll admit my younger self might have rolled my eyes at this a bit, but is the belief that the way we are with each other and ourselves is a political thing. And I don't mean just in isolation. I don't just mean like taking care of ourselves only is the only, is the only political act that mm-hmm. has value. But we are also alive. We are also the people that deserve goodness in our lives. Mm-hmm. We are also people that deserve, ought to have, we we believe, need belonging to thrive and need like safe and humane conditions to operate in. And that always putting the world that we want on the other side of the outcome that we're striving for. You know what it sort of reminds me of a little bit is my, my a thing I uh, watched my parents do is they worked their butts off their whole, I mean, they, my parents worked so hard with this idea that when they retire, then they will have the savings and the resources and et cetera to like live the lives that they've wanted to live. Mm -hmm. And it feels sometimes like that's the way that we relate to outcomes is like the beautiful thing, the world we want is on the other side of the outcomes that we're striving for. And we just have to wait and then, then things, then we'll have goodness. And Mm -hmm. I think I'm just sticking up for a little more like goodness right here that like, One of the ways we get to make the world we want is by living it. Hi, this is Caden, the publisher of Convergence Magazine. There are a lot of places that you can put your hard-earned money in support of our movements, but if you're enjoying this show, I hope you'll consider subscribing to Convergence on Patreon. We're a small, independent operation and rely heavily on our readers and listeners like you to support our work. You can join us at patreon.com slash convergencemag. Subscriptions are pay what you can, but at 10 bucks a month, you'll get goodies as well as knowing you're helping to build a better media system, one that supports people's movements and fights fascism. And if you can't afford it right now, don't worry. All our shows will be free for you to enjoy. You can also help by leaving us a positive review or sharing this episode with a comrade. Thank you so much for listening. From the strategic perspective, you were talking about how, like, well, should we be finding measures of our success that are more present, mm-hmm. uh, I love that, that way are more immediate, yeah. um, that rather than deferred or projected into the future? I think we can say rationally that history shows and the present conditions are revealing that history has a way of always catching up and overcoming our plans, either sooner or later. <laughs> and we can try to project the length, <laughs> you try to hold it off or project our will into the future, but history has this way of catching up with you. And then your dreams get further deferred into the future. And instead, there's just something to be said for embracing a, a sense, a real sense of the urgency of the present moment. And actually, how can I pursue this vision in this moment without necessarily assuming what will happen next year. Mm -hmm. But again, it's not simultaneous because we could be thinking about multiple possible futures 
at the same time even while asking, okay, given that, then what is most urgent in the present? But we can kind of go on. I, I also think about like um, what I heard in some of what you're saying about enjoying our own lives is, I mean, this was very difficult coming out of the climate movement and coming out of, uh, I think like building a life when you haven't staved off the apocalypse is a difficult thing to like mm. reconcile oneself to. And we were, you know, there was always so many axes of privilege and um, relative impact and who is in solidarity with whom in the context of global north, global south, frontline, you know, sort mm -hmm. of middle class axes within the climate movement that I think it was difficult, speaking for myself, to uh, it took a lot of time to sort of really on a deep level discover my own self-interest which is simply my desire to live a good life in a society that is rich and fulfilling in which people are treated with dignity and in which I can have like friends and family who I spend lots of leisure time with and you know do pool parties and stuff <laughs> so like uh, I'm really loving this about the housing campaign we're doing right now because it feels deeply self-interested where it's like we want to build affordable, permanently accessible, rent-stabilized social housing that we can live in, that we can live in so we can grow old here and we have a place that we will be able to afford to rent rather than, I don't know, having to move or dying of exposure in the 2040s in some climate disaster, you know? And so... In that sense, even though it's a long-term vision for uh, what would be required over, you know, five to ten years to really climb, you know, build a serious housing program here in, in Michigan, I mean, God willing, it feels very urgent and present in the sense that I have that felt need for security. You know, I need housing security just as much as anyone else. This is some of the reckoning I'm doing as I'm trying mm -hmm. to square my practical work with also these questions about how much we can or can't try to project our wills forward into the future and, and what is actually most worth fighting for on the spectrum you know of the most immediate how can i kind of have a better time with my family on this very day with my friends to the most revolutionary horizons and then with you know these various kind of reform campaigns situated somewhere in between i don't know if you want to pick up on any of that I'll say one thing, this is a little bit of an offshoot, but one of the things that reminds me of that I've also been reflecting on in this time is that when I first got involved in organizing, I was with, it lit me up. I was with my people. The folks that I worked alongside were people I became very close with and still am close with now. It transformed my sense of self and what I could do and what always possible what was possible it made me I dated people that I organized with <laughs> I we made food together we it was just it was so enlivening it was so enlivening and over the last 15 years a thing I've noticed is that my organizing has become much more professionalized my role has become much more discreet. It's on a piece of paper. It lives in a job description. I am doing work that that I is from a place of like sharp analysis and proposal creation and like that is it's very heady. It comes from a really heady place. And the contrast of those two cultures feels notable to me and I think part of what I'm finding myself yearning for is 
more of the belonging, play, let's just try shit kind of energy of the time in my life where organizing it felt like being in community as opposed to like a job. And I, I don't, you know, I'm still like in, trying to figure out what to do with that, but I maybe, maybe the loop back to like <laughs> the sensorium of white modernity is the, just that like, I think my, I think my, my way of being in the work has like shifted very much into that, into like formality, those structures, those, those set of assumptions. And I hear, I hear like part of what you exploring in your housing work is about like getting closer to home. And I don't just mean, and I don't mean like just in a like geographical sense, but getting closer to home in terms of like what is enlivening for you. What are also my interests that I'm going to need to take care of one way or mm. another? And that's another thing, because regardless of what my political work is, I need housing. And so in in doing the political work on housing, I've integrated what is what is what is a real like you know, a non hypothetical thing I need to sort out in my life, which is to figure out where I'm gonna live for the next forty years. I would be needing to do that either way. Mm-hmm. But it, so it's not just about it, it's enlivening, but it's like in some in some ways it's the work of actually building a life and and integrating that into the politics. So I, I, I don't want to reject the term enlivening, but I just want to bring there is something about this which I think is deeply rooted in interest. And mm-hmm. the interest we all have is in trying to find a way that we're also going to survive and ha- experience beauty and love our lives in the 21st century, which is looking like a very violent and insecure place in which more and more people are getting caught up in this churn and there's so much that is inherently uncertain. So I think there's something about doing these political campaigns that are supposed to lead to something else and they have no immediate and obvious benefit on a time horizon that people can digest. But we say that it's part of a revolutionary horizon and so we can get motivated about that. Only young people and ideologues can get motivated about that. I think like 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 truly, in the sense that they're they're willing to put in the true belief and faith that one thing will lead to another and eventually it will get to the promised land, like you said. But I think for the vast majority of us, the questions that are close to home are the closest to home. And it is the question of how our lives are at will actually be shaped. And unless our politics has a relevance to that, that people can understand and feel, I don't think we will successfully build mass organizations or convince people that it's worth it to fight for something either. Part of what you're saying makes me think like one of the projects I'm most attracted to here is there's a there's a community farm like three miles up the road from where I live. And they're not apolitical, but they're not leading with there's not like some analysis that's plastered on the side of their barn. That's not the way that they mm-hmm. that's not the way that they mm-hmm. move. And I love, I have found myself just like loving going there and investing in that place. And I think it's for some of the reasons you're naming, which is like, it gives me a sense of belonging and security. Like these are people that live where I live that are also facing the challenges that I'm facing where I am. And I can just, I get to be in more relationship with them doing a thing that means that we will have more food and more of us will know how to have food. And there's just something very 
material about it. And also that gives me a greater sense of security that like when things get upended, these are people I can be with in that and find like, you know, support each other and find our way. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it's not even a campaign. I mean, it's not, there's not a, it's a really like practical, literally in the ground project, but so in some ways it's not, it's not really going after power structures. It is a way of building power, even if it's not a way of going after the dominant power structures. You know, we used to talk about, uh, you know, transforming dominant institutions versus building alternatives. I want to move beyond all some of these distinctions, because I do think that there's something to be said that it's like the alternatives can become an an alternative power base. If the goal is to end up in the future in a better place than we are now, with more self-determination, more power, more opportunities, more dignity for ordinary people, and we need the power to deliver all of that. Why should we only be thinking in terms of campaigns and quote-unquote power-building membership organizations, which will be, and you say, well, in the future, we'll have a more robust organization with more members than we have now, but we're never thinking about what physical assets could we possess? What land could we possess? What housing assets could we possess that people can actually live in, whether there are, you know, militant organizers or, you know, our parents or just ordinary people who are part of our movement and part of our community? Why are we not thinking about maybe how to get money in like a more systematic and I mean, you know, again, easier said than done. But like, why are we not asking like, oh, could, could we have five billion dollars? It was like we didn't have to beg a billionaire for every year. But like we, we found some way to get that. Uh, uh, but it's going to take 10 years, you know. So, again, I also think it's possible to overstate it, you know, because like having the community garden does not actually deliver you food security. And I know there's lots of people online who would be like eager to tell you that, like if you start romanticizing the community farm. But like. Is it helping people to discover their agency? And is it doing something to address the need? And could it lead to other things? Absolutely. And it does all the time. And we've seen how garden, I mean, it's not an accident that gardens and farms are like a place where people meet each other and like really do help build communities. So I'm a believer in all that. One way I've related to big questions in the past is like what, or, or the phases of movement work in the past is by asking questions about like, what's an urgent intervention that's needed at this moment? What can we do to like meet the moment, match it? What kind of power do we need to build? What kind of formation do we need to get in to do that? And I think those are all questions that are in the place of like an orientation toward controlling an outcome. And I don't mean that we shouldn't plan. Like I I really want to say, I really want that to come, uh, come across clearly. So I'll say it clearly. And I believe we should build mass organizations that have members. So uh, that I'll say that too. And, we just need to be thinking about a lot more than that. You know, it's like it's funny even just hearing myself talk about this because I can hear how difficult it is for the the precise language to come. You know, I'm so used to talking about like institution building as the primary thing that that I am putting energy into. I am less interested these days in like what is the smartest, savviest intervention around a thing. Like looking externally as the primary place that I am looking for guidance about what. Mm-hmm. I or we ought to do next. And because I think the wisdom that is inside of us is just as if not greater in terms of telling us what we need. I mean, I think I'll just say like, this is this is part of the impetus for this training this fall. So I got back from sabbatical this summer, very reluctantly. I was like, I don't, I'm, yeah, I have a lot of questions about where I fit and if some of the 
kind of third really questions I was asking could be if my organization and the people I was organizing with would accept them. And so what I did was I negotiated a role for myself where I just, I just spent a lot of the summer and early fall doing one-on-ones with people that are in our network about like, what shape are you in? Like, how are you doing? What do you see is happening around you? And I would say something, something like 85% of the people I talked to, like the vast majority of people I spoke with are out of shape. I mean, they're just, they are, the conversations I had were tearful. Folks are struggling. There's like a, I don't know what we do next. I don't know where we go next. I'm not, um, a feeling of being lost. And so the training that we're offering this fall is in relationship to that. It's like, this is what is happening in the, with the people that I'm in the most relationship with. And so we're going to make an offering that gives us a chance to like be with what is up. And it feels wise to me because it is pacing with what is real, like what is what we're getting, you know, it's pacing with what's out there versus pacing with like a, where are we trying to get in four years and what are all the things we need to do to get us there, which is what I was doing for the last five years. It's like, where are we trying to get and what do we need to do to get us there? And I'm not sure if the thing that I'm experimenting with right now, playing with right now is just some like next phase that I'm going through that maybe people around me are going through that I want to give leadership to. Or if it is like some broader and more like lifelong correction that feels like it's in response to have, having had like an outsized relationship to control for a long time. Yeah. So that brings us back again to the the sensorium of, of white modernity. <laughs> um, I love that word, sensorium. I'm reminded of what um, Raymond Williams called a structure of feeling, uh, a structure of feeling that exists in white modernity, um, sensorium. And I'm just thinking about like what that would be. And I'm, you know, the name of the title of the show is called The Hegemonicon. And we're trying to explore the different layers of hegemony that exists in our society, which help basically forge consensus against people's interests or against their knowledge sometimes. And, you know, a lot of us, I think, have thought of ourselves as counter hegemonic political actors or movement builders. But there are other layers of hegemony that are over our heads to which we are subject. Mm -hmm. And you think that you're actually on one side of things and you realize that you're looking through a prism as a, a you know an American citizen or as someone who's consuming a modern American media diet diet citizen of the imperial core bottom line um, and you know that consciousness or that 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 sensorium of white modernity I think it's sort of that's the thing that tells us that you know control is in the cards yeah. it's possible and also, revelation is just around the corner. And reality is more like reality for 95% of the population, let's say that, and a, and a growing number, <laughs> even in the core, are now inhabiting this reality. Control is not in the cards if it ever was in the first place. It's about navigating uncertainty and the unknown. And revelation is not just about the, uh, just around the corner. 
history is always happening. It's combined and uneven. <laughs> Something new is always coming around the corner, around the bend. And living is about making one's own life, but also doing politics in the midst of that, not submitting to some of these illusions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think of one, one little uh, exercise I've been doing for myself is like uh, making these little charts of like, what are the things that I think are the myths that I've inherited from like this white modernity sensorium? And then what are the things that I think are, you just used it a version of it out loud, but like, what are the things that I think are the alternative yeah. way of thinking, being, operating? Because I want to get, I don't want the way that I'm organizing to replicate the things inside of the systems or our society that I'm trying to transform. There's something that feels counterproductive about that to me. And I think I've been doing that. I think I've been like, I think I've been practicing organizing in a way that does replicate some of the things I've learned from from the inside, from being so close to the empire. So things I would put into the like, these are these are beliefs that are a part of the sensorium of white modernity are things like we can exercise control now and over time that like control is control is a resource we have that we should do what we should do according to some kind of external standard like there is some there are some ways to be good that are definite, finite, always true, and we should adhere to them. That action, activity, acting on the world is like the highest good, that like doing, that productivity is the measure of us getting somewhere. That the smart way to work is to create uh, multi-year long-term timelines that, that are underpinned by some sense of continuity and that continuity is uh, to be expected and to be desired, that the best plans that we have are intellectual ones that like come from our minds, our study, our thinking, that we should like, um, that scale is the most, scale and size is the most, is like the most desirable way to operate. We should always be building, we should always be growing. And then the one we've talked about already, like that we should, we're, we're working toward winning. We're working towards some like final destination. Um, and then we, when we get there, it will be, we will have arrived. <laughs> That'll be it. And I think when I say, when I say those assumptions out loud, they sound ridiculous. Like I, I, if you asked me if I believed in those things, I would say, of course I don't believe in those things. And I think what's so tricky about them is that the ways that they can infuse our organizations and the ways that we operate are so subtle. I can tell you that I think those are like, poof, I'm not, <laughs> why would we build organizations like that? <laughs> and I can feel the way that when we host an organizing meeting and 30 people registered and five people come, that like we panic, that there's a panic that sets in about like, we did all the things, we were supposed to have an outcome, people didn't show up, we did something wrong, we failed, we're bad. Like there's a, and whether or not we say that stuff out loud, there's this like thing, there's this thing that happened, there's a unspoken internal processes that shape how we relate to the work we're doing yes. that yes. are not these extreme statements, but are just like the little 
But it's a fragile, it reflects a fragility in our own security about what we're doing. So it has to be constantly shorn up because if five people come, then it's invalidated the idea that there will be an exponential process that will start from where we are now and it will simply exponentially into the future become the revolutionary movement that we dream of. I think people understand exponential growth and so it's very hard to accept the reality that the line goes down because in our imagination, the line needs to always go up towards the destination. Right. And so I think some of the counters to that are like, right. So the count, so, you know, one thing that we would put inside the, the uh, sensorium of white modernity is like exponential growth versus seasons that like our work has seasons, the way that our group lives operate have seasons or flows or up and downs that like that, growth, death, rebirth, like the work that we do happens in cycles that, anyway, so I think I, the place I want to, you know, I'm like putting my most attention these days is like, okay, so we've got the, we got the like white modernity sensorium list. What are the things that are on the other side of that chart that maybe I don't, maybe I, or like the people I'm closest to don't have a, I think as you're saying, like, it can be hard to see the thing that we're inside of. So like, what is outside of the thing that we're inside of? And the thing I am finding myself most curious about these days is that wisdom. Like, what are the things that are on the other side of that chart? I, th- I have hunches about them. And I think folks like Bio, Andrea, others have been like helping me see a little more clearly folks that are a little farther out- outside, of mm-hmm. the, outside of the sensorium. But I think there are things that include an awareness that we are in constant change. The world, the conditions we're in are constantly changing. That's just a part of change is always happening. We have a thing inside of ourselves that is not our processing mind, that is our physical sensations, our deep inner self that is also a resource for making decisions and also a resource for knowing how we want to move and what might attract people and what might attract us. And like that there is, there are other forms of ways to act smartly (laughs) that Surrender is an option in addition to always acting, that we're allowed to let things fall apart. You can get to get my smaller. question about giving up. Yeah, I wonder if you could say yeah. a little bit more about surrendering and giving up. I One of the things I do in my work is I'm in a lot of coaching relationships, and I coach a lot of organizers around the state. And I have a relationship with a person who is uh, six years ago now. Um, began a rural pride chapter, a very hard thing to do. And she formed a group, formed a team. They hosted a number of large, beautiful pride events that included, this one event had over 200 people at it. For many people, it was the first time they'd been to a pride event at all. Just this, especially young people, just this very transformation. I mean, it was beautiful. And I think a transformational experience for a lot of people that were there. Over the last six months, her core team, she's been exhausted. Her core team has been falling apart a little bit. Folks, folks want to uh, leave the organization, not, not uh, continue the work. Nothing big dramatic happened. It's just like people are at the end of some arc of their input in this project. And she's been wrestling with herself about whether or not to keep holding it or letting it go and 
wondering if letting it go is even a real option. And I think so. I think the way she's been asking the question is, should I like escape or should I should I keep it alive? And anyway, we got together a couple of weeks ago and I asked her, what is the thing that you were longing for? And the thing she said is, I'm longing to set this thing down. And I think it's just such a hard thing. You know, it's just like so hard to say out loud because it's because it's counter to the thing, which is like we're always supposed to be building a thing. And that's how we know that we're doing the right doing right. And like maybe I should have had more one on ones. Right. Wasn't organized in the right way. And yeah. I think what's actually true is that she and this group gave leadership to a thing for a, a period of time. And that's the energy that they had for it. And that's the extent of when it was life-giving to them and they could see what it was valuable for and it has run its course and we got to spend part of our time together talking about like what would it look like to host a funeral for her organization and this she had this idea of having some sort of big supper um I asked her when's the last time she felt like she had there was a lot of like a sense of belonging in the group and she talked about this big dinner that they hosted a couple of years ago and what it might be like to recreate that and host a big funeral and the sense of relief in her and the sense of like just letting that be okay was I don't know the way she walked into our conversation and the way she walked out of it were very different shapes so part of it I think giving another way to say giving up is like letting a thing die that's ready to die with the belief that there's wisdom in it with the belief that like things have seasons there are cycles things can grow and then usually they get to some kind of point where in growth where there is decay. Like that is just a natural thing that she is moving through. And um, I think a lot of the pain I saw in her was like about trying to be in a posture that denied the existence of that, which was like, we got to keep going. We got to keep propping it up. We got to keep making it. And goodness knows I have been through those. I mean, you know, when I've, when I've been ready to like, leave an organization oh. or a camp. I'm thinking of this water campaign I worked on for a while that just totally stalled out. And I felt so much, I felt a lot of shame for it stalling. Like it was my fault that it didn't go forward. And anyway, I, I, I have a hunch that there's other organizers who have stories like that of just kind of being in rebellion against the thing that's ready to die. And I think that part of my a uh, friend of mine, Naomi, calls the, like, uh, she's like, oh, maybe you could, you know, maybe where you're moving toward is becoming a death doula. But I think there's something about, like, letting the things in our lives that are in our organizing work that are ready to close, close and setting them down. Yeah, I remember one of the proudest days of my organizing life was with, when one of, uh, you know, one of many uh, organizations I was I was part of uh, that no longer exists, but one of them... Uh, when I heard the news that the they were deciding to actually shut it down, and I thought, what a relief. Yeah. Now we can feel really good about all the work that we did. Yeah, right. <laughs> and celebrate Rather it. than lamenting, you know, that its season has has passed mm-hmm. and have people kind of, um, you know, some some cases stuck there or trying to reinvent the magic yeah and maybe it makes me it makes me want to say one more thing about uncertainty well which is like i think that when the conditions shift when more things you know things we weren't expecting come our way when we're not sure what's ahead of us is that it could mean that a season is ending more abruptly than we thought or it could mean that the thing that we were 
creating is is uh, no longer needed. And I think that's what's so hard about it. You know, I think that's what's, what's so hard about navigating changing conditions and uncertainty is that when we're when we're operating from a place that is um, in the like these these beliefs of white, white modernity, we create additional suffering for ourselves by resisting the thing that we're that is unfolding. And I love that you just use the word relief because I think that the wonderful thing about like shifting course or setting things down, whatever whatever adjustment it is that we're making, it can be so relieving and it can mean that other things can grow in the place of that or um, we can rest or something. It just means that like, you know, when something gets set down, it means that something else is possible. And I think that the practice, one of the practices I want to be in right now is just like letting things go organizationally and impersonally, but just that aren't, that are ready to, ready to die so that a new thing can get born. Yeah. We're, we're getting towards the end here. Um, I know there's going to be a lot in this that's really going to resonate with people who are in the valleys of their work and other people who are not uh, knowing what to do next. So shout out to everyone out there in the valleys. I wonder what you would say to the people who are climbing the peaks, mm. not in the valleys. And those are some of the people who I imagine saying to this conversation like, oh, it's like, it's really soft. It's not focused on doing what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry your shit fell apart, but like, I'm like a hero climbing this mountain, uh-huh. building the big thing. Um, uh, what message would you have for folks who are in that stage of the cycle? I think my message would be, oh, I know you. I've been, I've been that person. And I'm glad for you. There's something that feels so purposeful and thrilling and exciting to be creating there's uh, like I love that I love that there are some of us that are in that place and the valleys will come and so maybe this is a, a conversation that you put in a folder pocket email something somewhere for when the valley shows up just getting a little more resourced about it I hope that this offering gets received as some kind of bit of uh, medicine that can be available when it when it needs to get resourced and less of a interruption to those of us that are, you know, in the in the climbing creation part of their organizing work right now. Just to extend this metaphor a little bit, and then uh, I'll give you the final word. It it seems like we've learned a lot, maybe in the last 15 years, of how to build organizations that are built, you know, to be like peaks. We've kind of learned how to do some inspiring and powerful things and to achieve scale that we didn't think was previously possible. And even now people are reflecting and, and, and refining the technique of how to be in mass organization and uh, make decisions together and things like that. I feel that if, it's, if we're right that uncertainty is more the reality 
uh, especially of this century, the 21st century that we're living into, I think we're going to need to learn how to build organizations, movements, institutions, I don't even know what to call them, but that are capable of catching people and holding them in the valleys. Because that's often when people are alone and when they fall away from our other organizations or fall away from their communities and end up lonely. And I just can't help but feel that if you can hold people there, then, well, then maybe you can do a lot together. Mm. Yeah, that feels so true to me. And I think is one more uh, implicit challenge that I hear you offering to this, you know, this like white some white white uh, modernity sensorium and and other way. It's just that one of the things that can happen inside organizations and has certainly happened inside of the organizations that I've been a part of is that folks will have a family emergency, have doubt, have, you know, not, not be in a place where they're like producing, creating, adding in the way that is in a product by measures of productivity, adding to the work. And I don't know how many times I've seen those people drop out, drop off, not get held, get curious about in their full humanity and way. And Honestly, part of the reason I'm I'm still in this work is I feel like I've been gifted the last several months of getting to be one of those people that's in a valley that's getting held in my whole humanity and way. And I'm there was a period of time where I was wondering if I was still going to be here. And I am here because I'm in a I have a team that wants to love me in whatever shape I'm in. And I I have a strong wish for that for other people. Thanks, Katie. Well, any closing thoughts? Sum it all up for us? Yeah, what's that? <laughs> Sum all that up. The invitation I want to make to folks who are curious about this conversation or who found some resonance here is there might be ways of being operating that have been um, disavowed in you or disavowed in the in the organizing communities that you work with that you might get to pick up and try on and like sort of help you navigate the season that you're in. And the other invitation I want to make is that I think some of the things that we're talking about here are also little bits of wisdom that can support us, resource us, even when we're in the most like driving, growing, creating times and I think that these awarenesses are not just for when we're at our low spots, but I think they're for for always and might create some opportunities for us to get creative about how our organizations work, how the organizations and institutions we're creating that that are out to make change are structured, move, do the things they do. Yeah. That takes us to the seems like a practice of expanding our empathy because like mm. you said there's not just political cycles everybody has their own personal cycles and not everybody can claim climb the mountain at the same pace mm-hmm. people fall off and do we have awareness of that can we catch them okay thank you so much katie this has been awesome i'd love to just talk to you all day um <laughs> shoot the shit um uh just as always a 
big fan of yours. Um, really glad to um, be in your corner and know that you're down there in Fayette County. Thanks, Will. Thanks for having such a odd conversation on a podcast <laughs> that's about organizing. I I appreciate the yeah you uh, joining me in curiosity about like some of the third raily parts of this conversation. So thanks yeah. for inviting it. Let us know what you think, folks. Um, definitely want to hear feedback and what points of resonance you heard in this. All right, we'll close it there. This podcast is written and hosted by me, William Lawrence. Our producer is Josh Elstro, and it is published by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. You can help support this show and others like it by becoming a Patreon subscriber of Convergence for as low as $2 per month at patreon.com slash convergencemag. You can find a direct link in the show notes. This has been the Hegemonicon. Let's talk again soon. Let's talk again soon.